Good morning, church. As Aaron said, my name is Timothy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. This morning, we're continuing in our sermon series in the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, and today we will be looking at the fruit of peace. I invite you now, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning, we're in Zechariah chapter 8. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8, and then verses 12 and 13. This is God's Word. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Verse 12. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We come to you now and ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would allow me, your servant, to get out of your way so that we can encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. As a pastor, one of the primary reasons why people come to visit me is because they are going through a crisis. And pretty much every time they come, the request of me is the same. Pastor, make it stop. And the thing that most saddens me about this request is, is not that it's not something that I desire for them. I do. I want the pain and the suffering in this person's life to go away. But what saddens me is that I actually want far more than that for this person. My hope, my desire, my longing is not simply for the pain to go away, but I long for these people to experience joy and satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment not just the absence of pain and suffering. The reason I share that with you this morning is because I think we often approach this fruit of the Spirit much in the same way. We think of peace simply as the absence of conflict. 
And yet, according to God, it's so much more than that. So this morning, I want to begin by presenting you with a biblical definition of peace. And then after that, we'll look at how this fruit of the Spirit is made with us, cultivated in us, and then germinated through us. Let's begin. So what is peace according to God? The word for peace in the Old Testament is a word that you might have actually heard before. It's shalom. And although most every Bible translation out there translates this word shalom with the English word peace, unfortunately, this word peace doesn't even come close to communicating the full weight of what God intends when he says shalom. And the reason why is that this word peace really only signifies the absence of something. Webster defines peace as the absence of war, disturbance, or tranquility. And that's how we normally use this word. It's, it's the absence of bad things, of conflict. And shalom certainly is that. It is the absence of conflict, but according to God, it is so much more. See, shalom is not just the absence of something profoundly bad. It is also the presence of something profoundly good. The word shalom literally means completeness or wholeness. The word is used in the Old Testament to describe things like a stone wall with no gaps, a brick with no cracks, a flock with no animals missing. You see, shalom refers to something that is complex, that has many parts or pieces that is in a state of wholeness. Nothing is missing Nothing is lacking. It's complete. When the Bible talks about shalom, it is personal. It refers to completeness and wholeness in an individual. It exists when a person is physically, emotionally, and psychologically well. But shalom is not just personal. Shalom demands completeness and wholeness of relationship as well. It exists only when a community is unified and working together, unbroken. Last but not least, shalom is also spiritual. It exists when man's relationship with God is strong and vibrant, intimate, without division or separation. So I hope you can see how gloriously complex biblical peace is, what Shalom truly is. It encompasses individuals, communities, and God, all interconnected, woven together like a beautiful tapestry, united and flourishing as one. That is shalom. And now that we have defined the word, I think we can all agree that that this fruit is grossly absent. It's absent both from our lives and from our community and from our relationship with God. Shalom is not here or here. Now, in order to cultivate this fruit, I think we have to first acknowledge why. Why is shalom missing from our lives, from our community, from our relationship with God? The Bible answers this question with one word, sin. It's because of sin, because of man's rejection of and disobedience to God that shalom has been lost. Sin has created disunity and discord in us 
disunity and discord between us and creation, between us and each other, and ultimately between us and God. What the Bible argues is if, if we obeyed God fully, that if we were faithful, we would experience this shalom, this completeness and wholeness of self and relationship and intimacy with God. But since we all fail to do so, we experience brokenness and disunity, pain and suffering, lack and loss. Which brings us now to our text. Zechariah is a prophet who is writing to God's people shortly after they have returned home to Jerusalem after many years of exile. And there is no question that the people of God that Zechariah is writing to, just like us, are grieving the absence of shalom in their lives and in their community. Their homes and fields have been destroyed by the Babylonians. Their numbers have been greatly diminished by war and oppression. And the elderly had all but disappeared from their midst because of the harsh rule of the Babylonians and most likely their inability to journey back from Babylon to Jerusalem. All these things combined to produce this gross absence of shalom. The people of God were beginning to lose hope. And so God calls upon his prophet Zechariah to give a word to his people. And, and the message of this text and, and really the whole Old Testament is take heart. Shalom is coming. Listen to the breadth of God's promise in verse 12 again. It says, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. See, God's message throughout, through his prophet Zechariah is that because of his zeal and passion for his people, he is going to bring shalom, a shalom beyond their wildest dreams. But how will it come? Remember how I mentioned that the destroyer of shalom is sin. And as the Bible makes plain, mankind left to its own devices can't help but sin. So how then will God bring this shalom to us, look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and then the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Don't miss this, church. What the text reveals is the only way for us to experience shalom is for God to come down to us. It is through his coming that shalom is brought. He brings peace, peace with us, in us, and through us. So let's look first now at how God brings peace with us. Look again at verse 8. It says, I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. See, through God's coming down, we are going to be united with him once again to be his people and he be our God. And this idea of God being God's people and, and him being our God is covenantal in nature. 
meaning that's rooted in this promise that God has made with his people, a promise to shower blessings on his people if and only if they are faithful and righteous. God has promised through covenant to gift the faithful and obedient ones with shalom, with wholeness and completeness. And yet that's the problem, isn't it? God's people never have been and never will be faithful and obedient. This is why God's people were sent into exile in the first place. So how then do the people of God become worthy of this blessing? The answer we see here is through a substitute. Throughout the Old Testament, and even here in Zechariah 8, we hear this murmuring of one who is to come on behalf of God's people in their place, a chosen one, a faithful one, a Messiah, one who would be fully and completely faithful and obedient, one who would keep the covenant vows that God's people had been unable to fulfill themselves. Don't miss this, church. The one who is to come, according to the prophet Isaiah, would be called the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace. And the prophet declares that when this prince comes, he will bring a shalom that will never end. And the original audience, they would have been looking forward, longing for the arrival of that great prince. But church, we look back. Amen. And we rejoice along with the angels that through the coming of Christ, there is now on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 5 when he says that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our sin had separated us from God. It had robbed us of shalom, of the wholeness and completeness that we so desire and that we were created for. But the good news of the gospel is that the Prince of Peace has come and that he has purchased shalom for all of us by making a way for us to dwell in God's presence once again. Church, that's the essence of the cross on that tree. Jesus, the only true and faithful one, took on the punishment for our unfaithfulness. And thereby he made a way for us to once again be in relationship with God, to experience shalom with him. Not only did God come down for the purpose of creating shalom with us, what we also see here is that God came to create shalom in us. I think clearly one of the hardest aspects of this pandemic is that as it has hindered us from being together, as experienced right now. Certainly the virus itself is scary, but the fact that we have to face our fears alone makes it that much worse. Amen. The truth is that everything is harder and scarier when we have to face it alone. I'm pretty sure an indentation is developing in my mattress at home between my wife and me. And the reason why is because that space is quite often filled by one of my four children who is experiencing some sort of fear in the night, sometimes more than one of my children. And Lord, help me when that happens. And I don't have the heart to tell my kids that they actually aren't any safer in my bed than they are in their own bed. But the truth is their feeling of security is exponentially higher in my bed 
because mommy and daddy are present. They're near. Brothers and sisters, because the Prince of Peace has reconciled, has made peace between us and the Father, we can trust that he is near. This is the glory of the Holy Spirit. You know, shortly before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples this. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What is he talking about? This was a preview of the gift that that Jesus would give at Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of God's continual presence in us and with us. This gift of God's forever presence is the application of God's promise in Deuteronomy to never leave us or forsake us. And it's this presence that produces peace in us. And it's this, it's this, because of this peace that just after Jesus makes this promise, he encourages his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How can he say that when he's about to leave? Church, there's much for our hearts to be troubled about in this moment. So much to be afraid of. And no doubt the people that Zechariah was writing to felt the same. And the danger that they faced in this moment and that we face in this moment right now is to believe that because our circumstances are bad, that God must be distant. That because things aren't going perfectly, that God must be absent, far away. But the promise of God is that even in those times of trouble, especially in those times of trouble, that he is right there beside us. Church, do you believe that? Every day is a part of my time with the Lord, I, I pray through Psalm 23. And this morning I was so reminded of God's peace-producing presence promised in this psalm. He says, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The psalm promises that our God is near but not just near in the good times. He goes on to say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Church, what I've come to realize is that the more I live into and rest in God's presence, the more I experience this inner peace, this completeness and wholeness that God longs for me to enjoy. I do want to clarify here that the inner peace is not binary. It's not something that we either possess fully or not at all. That's the reason why Paul uses this metaphor of fruit. It's because peace, like all the other fruit of the Spirit, is something that must be cultivated and nourished in us that grows over time. So for those of you who are right now overwhelmed with anxiety and fear, do not be discouraged. The promise of our text is that God is growing his peace in you. Even when you're not aware of it, slowly but surely, his peace is coming in you. And not only that, but Paul gives us some very helpful advice on on how to water and develop this fruit in Philippians 4. He says, be anxious for nothing. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that the all-powerful God of the universe is actually at your disposal. That's what God's presence in our lives means. When we are struggling, God longs for us to bring him into those struggles, to share with him our fears, our anxieties, our doubts, our losses. And Paul goes on to say that the result will be, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The promise here is that when we come to God in prayer, when we bring our anxieties, our fears to him, we will experience that inner shalom, that inner peace more and more. Now, last but not least, not only does God's presence produce peace with us and in us, but it also produces peace for others through us. It it germinates out of us, if you will. It's easy in our Western society to focus primarily on the personal benefits that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have provided for us. And I'm in no way downplaying the glory of a right relationship with God and the the inner shalom that that relationship provides. And yet shalom in the Bible is always bigger than just me and Jesus. Look again with me at our text starting in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand, because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. What we see here is that shalom, when realized, has citywide implications. I will never forget the first time I visited this place, Durham, North Carolina. It was back in 2007 when I came here to observe a a local ministry that I was considering being a part of. It's a ministry that exists to raise up young leaders in a neighborhood that was extremely marginalized at the time. And on the day that I arrived, we were supposed to go see a movie at Northgate Mall. But right as we were heading outside to load up the vans, a loud noise interrupted the playful sound of kids interacting with one another. It was the sound of a handgun going off very close by, and as my eyes turned to where the sound was coming from, I was able to catch a glimpse of a car speeding by, and I saw the driver with his hand out the window holding a pistol and firing round after round into the air. Now, that moment was jarring enough by itself, but it was actually the events that followed that really messed me up. You see, first of all, as soon as the gunshots began to go off, every single child immediately hit the ground. And after a few seconds, I was the only one left standing. And the reason I was the only one standing was because I was the only one who didn't know what to do in a situation like that. See, because everyone else had clearly experienced something like this before. After the car was a safe distance away, we got up and the police were called. I'm sure they came, but we didn't stick around to find out. And you see, this was the most jarring thing of all. After we collected ourselves, everyone just got into the van and we went to the movie as if nothing happened. I couldn't help but think about 
what a fuss there would have been if this had happened in my neighborhood growing up. Every cop on duty would have been there in a second and it would have been talked about for weeks. Not in this neighborhood. Because in this neighborhood, drive-bys were the norm, not the exception. And each one of these kids knew full well that they were powerless to stop them. So they just lived with it. Church, shalom, according to verses 4 and 5, exists when kids can play in the streets and not worry about getting shot. Shalom exists when the elderly enjoy long lives and instead of working right up until their last breath, they get to join the children in the streets and lean on their canes and talk about the good old days. Church, do we realize how much that completeness and wholeness is lacking in our city? Do you realize how many neighborhoods there are in Durham where it is not safe for kids to play in the streets? Do you realize that the life expectancy in this city is roughly 20 years shorter in parts of East Durham than it is in parts of West Durham? Are we aware of how much shalom is lacking in this place that we call home? The good news is that God has a solution for this place, and that solution is us. Look with me again at the second half of verse 13. O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. God gives us peace with him through the blood of his son Jesus, and he gives us inner peace that comes through the presence of his Holy Spirit. And because of that, we now get to be his instrument of peace to others. The last line is challenging for sure. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. I think the way we might say this today is get to work. I love how my friend Danny Iverson says it. He says, a follower of Jesus is a shalomer on earth. One who is constantly and graciously reorienting every aspect of their world so that people can not only just get along, but thrive together to see the planet flourish the way God designed it to be. It's in our identity as God's people to be such peacemakers just like Jesus. Church, this is what we mean when we say we exist for the good of Durham. We are declaring that that we are on mission to search out that which is broken, unjust, disconnected, malnourished, under-resourced, marginalized, and that we are fighting to make those things complete and whole again. That is our gift to this place, the gift that flows out of the shalom that we have been given by God himself. Church, how are we doing at being shalomers in this place? How are we doing at spreading this peace that we have been so graciously gifted? I realize that question is particularly challenging in this pandemic, in this season where social distancing is one of the best ways that we can cultivate peace in this place. But I still want to challenge us to dream big to dream about how we might be better instruments of peace for our city. I want to conclude with a very practical application. I want to charge you to spend each and every day over the next week, longer if you'd like, starting your day 
with the prayer of St. Francis. As you pray that prayer, I want you to ask God to give you eyes to see where the shalom is missing in this place. In your family, your neighborhood, in your classroom, in your workplace, on the streets and sidewalks, in the businesses and schools. Ask God to make you like him, jealous for this place and for the people of this place. Jealous for all of Durham to experience the peace that comes through relationship with him. Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in the giving that we receive, and it is in the pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in the dying that we are born to eternal life.